Welcome to Keep the Game Beautiful podcast. Each week, I highlight incredible people who are doing amazing things in soccer, the beautiful game. I'm Anna Turi, your host. Thank you for listening. This past weekend has been amazing out on the field. It's been two full days, and it's just been so surreal to be back on the field, and it's just super exciting to see everyone playing soccer again. Today with Dem Williams, we chat about the recruitment process and recruiting in general. We talk about ways players can get on coaches' radars or ways players can just get involved with the recruitment process. We also talk about ways coaches or parents can help support their players and athletes. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm talking about a subject I haven't fully discussed in the podcast yet about recruiting and the recruitment process. Today, I'm joined by Don Williams, the head of operations at Sports Recruiting Recruiting US. Along with his current position, helping with recruitment, he has been involved in soccer for a long time. Don has coached at the collegiate level for 22 years. I am excited to learn more about not only his coaching journey today, but his current role and the work he does. So, Don, could you start by sharing a little bit more about yourself and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, you hit it on the head. I've been coaching for 22 years in college. I retired in 2018 um, from college coaching. I've coached at virtually every level in the, com- in the country. I've coached professionally. I've coached in the NCAA. I've coached Division II. I've coached Division III. I've coached NAIA. I've coached junior college. Um, I've coached at the Olympic Development Program, and um, yeah, so this is this is what this is what I'm doing now. I've been playing soccer since since I was eight years old, so almost 50 years now. I've been involved in the college in in soccer in some form or another, and uh, yeah, now I'm working with Sports Recruiting USA and helping kids get into college and find the right fit for themselves. So on this podcast, I always start with the same three questions. First, what does the beautiful game mean to you? Uh, Life. It's been my life, and it was a lifesaver for me. I've seen it save the life of of other kids. I've seen kids pulled out of um, situations, and I was one of those kids that – my life would have been very, very different um, had it not been for soccer, not for the better. Uh, I've seen it change, uh, lead, lead people to education. I've seen it lead people to places all over the world and make lifelong friendships with people from all over the world that they never would have met before. So, and I can draw so many different analogies to different aspects of life through soccer. So for me, the beautiful game is is life. What are actions or things you do to keep the game beautiful? Yeah, every day I, I, I try to be positive through the game of soccer and, and, and interact with people and, and show them how it can be a lifelong um, passion for them one, one way or another. Uh, coaches, as players, as parents trying to help their kids um, through it. But um, yeah, I just try to, um, to, to reach deep inside every day uh, since this is what I do for a living and, and find ways to encourage people through the game. 
how do you encourage others to keep the game beautiful? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, there, it's interesting when I, when I, cause I knew that you asked these three questions. I've listened to your podcast before. And, um, and when we talk about keeping the game beautiful and, 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 you know, there's so much ugliness out there in the game right now. And, you know, there was a big controversy just, just yesterday uh, where Landon Donovan took his team and decided not, not to play because of uh, homophobic slurs that were being made. And, you know, there's um, uh, campaigns that are going on all over the world, you know, the kicking racism out of football and, you know, trying to encourage people to do the right thing, Anna, um, in our game is not always easy because it's, it's a competitive, uh, game, you know, and people want to win and some will do things at all costs to win. Right. And, and I never wanted to be that kind of coach. I was never one that taught my kids how to cheat, uh, who encouraged them to cheat, who encouraged them to win at all costs. Um, and so in my current role, of just helping kids into college, um, we talk about the right fit, right? We talk about not, not just choosing division one so that you can say that you're a division one athlete, right? And not just saying that um, uh, having bragging rights, that I'm doing something at a certain level over another level, over another person, domination. It's really about the individual's own journey. So, that was a long-winded response as I think about this, uh, Anna, but I think it's through encouraging people to find their own path and their own journey for themselves as an individual through the game. So talking about the right fit, what do you do to help the player find their right fit? Yeah, that's a good question. See, everybody's different. So it's getting to know the individual, first of all. What does that individual want? So I've got a girl right now that I'm helping uh, who, who lives in New York. And for her, the right fit is um, a specific level of an academic school. She wants to continue to play soccer, but the, the academic fit is, is more heavily weighted. See, Anna, as we get older in life, we realize that everything has a, a, a different weight to it when we're making decisions. So for, for other of my clients, and they understand that that's a great plan B and a great fallback, but it's all about the soccer. Then for other one of my clients, it's all about uh, the affordability of going to college. I've got a, a young man that I helped. He's going to Central Connecticut State this year. Um, Division one program in Connecticut. He's from California, but he's from a very, very underprivileged background, a very, very difficult situation. Uh, lives in Watts, California. There's literally gunfire going off every night. That's what lulls him to sleep. You know, gang warfare going on in and about his neighborhood. And for him, getting out and finding a school that was affordable, that was in a safe place, different than, that was his priority, right? So that was his right fit. For the girl in New York I was talking about, if we can find that right academic school uh, out of the 15 or 20 that she wants to go to in the country, then that's her right fit. For somebody else, like I said, it's the soccer. For one or two of my kids, so we've got a boy, Max Broughton, who captained the England under-17 national team 
to the World Cup championship and is playing for Bolton Wanderers. For him, it's probably a pathway that will lead him in back into the pro game and to being able to play there while he gets an education. So A, I've got to get to know what that individual really wants. B, then it's, um, it's a series of tick boxes and it's everything from location. Some kids want a big city. Some kids want a small town. Some kids want a big school. I've got a girl, Ava Quimby up in Canada. She's looking for a larger school experience. That's what she's looking for. I've got other kids that um, are looking for small school experiences. And then we've got kids that uh, have some money to spend on college. Some kids don't have money to spend on college. We've got kids that want to produce, the, that want to play at a high level soccer. We've got um, uh, the types of academics, right? We've got a young man that we're helping right now who's transferring to a school in aerospace engineering. Well, it's not like every single state school has aerospace engineering, right? I've got other students of mine that want to pursue interior design. Well, it's not like every school has interior design. It's not that easy. So uh, that's the right fit is, is for me is a series of tick boxes. And then you're trying to find the school that ticks most of those boxes. And Anna, I think that's kind of an analogy for life. It's not often in life where you get to envision something and then figure that that's perfect and then go find exactly that perfect thing that you were looking for. Usually life is a series of compromises. So if I only have $10,000 to spend on school and I want it to be in a, uh, in a big town and I want it to be a high level soccer and I want it to have an engineering program, maybe I have to give up the big town aspect, right? Or the small town aspect. Maybe I've got to give up a little bit of something to find that what is most likely the right fit. What do you say to a player if they don't know what they want, like what they want to pursue or if they want a big or small school? How do you, how do you help them through that? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, if they don't know what they want to study, my main advice is not to get locked into a school where that's all you could study. For example, um, Savannah College of Art and Design might not be the best place to start out if you don't know what you want to study, because if you decide that you want to study engineering, that, that Savannah College of Art and Design is going to be a bad choice because they don't have engineering, right? Or if you're going into... Uh, you think you want to study engineering, but you're not quite sure, you know, maybe your best choice might not be at a Lawrence Technical Institute. You know, it, it, while they have business programs and they're great and they're, they're fun, it might not be quite the same business education that you're going to be getting at another school. So if you don't know what you want to study, the, the larger state schools are going to have more options. And the other choice is always junior college because Look, the first two years of school, no matter whether you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whether you want to be an artist, no matter whether it's Harvard or Stanford or Cal State East Bay, where I used to coach, English is English. English 101 is the same. Look, Shakespeare is going to be the same at Harvard as it's going to be at your local junior college. Um, algebra, it's going to be the same. The equations are all the same. Uh, you know, the United States um, and, and the, and the, the uh, allied powers still won World War II, whether you're studying history at Stanford or whether you're studying, 
studying history at Colorado State University Pueblo. Doesn't matter. General education has to be done in that first year and a half, no matter where you go. So sometimes maybe a junior college is a better place to start if you're not sure what you want to do. And then you can always transfer later. So if you're not sure what you want to study, you want to keep it uh, to a school that's going to have as many options for you when possible. And frankly, Anna, probably 50, 60% of the kids that I've ever coached ended up changing their mind. Uh, I've had kids come in as a kinesiology major and then leave as an art major because they met a teacher that inspired them. And they've decided that, no, this is the direction I want to go. So you do want to leave yourself that little bit of flexibility in the first few years. I think it's important. What made you first really fall in love with soccer? Yeah, okay. So I'm probably six years old. My parents had just gotten divorced. My mom said that I, I needed to be involved in something. So at about age seven, I guess, probably, I, I take it back. I was... She, she puts me in baseball. I had a cousin who was playing baseball and I didn't like it. It was really slow. I only got into, I got to touch the ball like twice a game and I wasn't very good at it. I was scared of the ball. I was scared of getting hit. Um, and uh, the next year, a friend of mine says, hey, they're holding tryouts for this thing called soccer. We don't know what it is, but this is 1972, I guess. So Soccer was pretty kind of new in the United States and it, there was no soccer in the area. Anna, the first year that I played soccer, this is a city popul an, an area of a population of about 2 million people. We didn't have enough kids to fill up even one American football field on opening day. Absolutely incredible. And, and so they let me play and, and they stuck me at center forward in a day where we played with five forwards. You never see that today. But I was the center one, and I was supposed to be scoring a lot of goals. I got lucky. I scored one goal that year. I think the goalkeeper rolled the ball out, stuck my foot underneath it. It popped back up over his head and happened to go in. And the next year, the coach says, hey, look, we really like you. You show up every day. You work hard, but you're not a center forward. But we have a goalkeeper spot that just opened up. And would you like to try that? So they stuck a jersey on me. It wasn't even a jersey. It was a sweater. He was an Irish coach, and that's what they wore with sweaters. No goalkeeper gloves. They didn't exist back in the day. And, and I fell in love with it. I loved it. So here was this little boy who two years ago was scared to death to get hit by a baseball, and I'm diving at the feet of players and throwing myself all around, and I fell in love with it, and that was it. Only sport I ever really played from then on was, was that soccer and um, grew up playing it, loved it, and um, never wanted to do anything else. I wanted to, I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. And uh, kind, of into, kind of what I ended up doing was staying involved with it for the rest of my life, yeah. When did you decide to transition over to coaching and becoming a coach? That kind of thing just happens, you know? It wasn't a decision, in fact, and I had I'd gotten married and I, and I had kids and uh, my son was five years old uh, when my wife and I decided, hey, let's stick him in soccer. Um, and, and I waited in the car and I hadn't even planned on going in. I was, we were going to a family function afterwards and here comes my wife out with the president of the club and he says, um, hey, um, I heard you played soccer. 
I said, yeah, I did. He goes, well, the bad news is, is your son is uh, too young. He can't play. He's got to be six years old. He goes, but I'll let him play if, if you sign up to coach. Well, here's my son sitting in the car. What am I going to turn around and say, no, I'm not going to, you're not going to get to play soccer and I'm not going to coach you. So they suckered me into coaching. And I, and I said, frankly, look, I, I've, I played, but I know nothing about coaching, nothing. He goes, don't worry about it. We'll send you to coaching school. We'll pay for it. We'll take care of it. So they did. So they sent me to my F license and then, then I liked it and then took my E license and then my C and my B and eventually my A license. And then started coaching the high school team and, and, um, and then started coaching uh, the co- the co- one of the local college teams. I was a volunteer assistant coach for one team and then Cal State East Bay came calling and I ran their goalkeepers and then I became an assistant and I don't know, it just turned into a career. It just kind of happened year by year and, and it expanded itself. And then more, I was just kind of in demand, more and more people from our area asking me to do different projects. And then I was asked to be the goalkeeper coach for a professional team. And um, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of happened, Anna. Was it hard to convince others that coaching could be a profession for you? Now, you know what? The only one you have to convince when you're married, Anna, is your spouse. And uh, I'm really lucky. My wife, Tony, she's amazing. She, she, she put up with me having, I had eight different jobs at one time because I was trying to make soccer full-time. And, you know, my first year with the college, Anna, people think college coaches make a lot of money. My first paid job was $750 a year. That was it. And that was working, you know, every single day at training, going to games with the team, the whole thing for $750 a year. And that lasted for about six, seven years. And then I got a massive raise to like $1,200. It's like, woohoo, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, she encouraged me really. And, and even when I thought maybe I'm making a mistake, she was the one encouraging me to do it. I really didn't have to convince anybody that, that this was going to be a career for me. I had a lot of friends encouraging me to do it too. So yeah, that, that part wasn't hard. Before moving on, could you tell us a bit about some of your favorite memory, memories through your coaching journey? Oh, boy. You know, you think of winning championships when we won a few of those and I had a team one time it was ranked number two in the country and and uh you know we've had numerous top 20 national rankings with teams that i've been with and those really aren't the memories that i have it's really around the kids and the people you know i think about the bus trips a lot of fun they you know coming back from a from from a home win right and 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 the boys are singing on the bus and they're just, they're, they're chanting and singing English songs. It felt like you were in the stands, you know, and they're banging on the roof of the bus and they're, they're clapping their hands and singing English, English songs that they, that they sang in the stands at home. Th- those are good memories. Those are really good memories. Um, we had a couple of hard, hard times, you know. We, we, we had one girl, where, one year where we lost a girl. She passed away in the middle of the season, tragic, tragic accident. And the memory of how how that team came together, I was coaching the men's and the women's team at the same time at that school. And and they all came together and bonded together in a way that 
that I don't know, not very many teams will ever really bond together. Um, while her memory of her passing away was horrible and tragic, um, no, the, the memory of how those t kids came together and banded around her family and were hugging her parents and being there for them and, and seeing today, Anna, how they still keep in touch. Yeah, I don't know, 22 years, Anna, and you're asking me to pull out one memory. That's a hard one. That, that's a hard one. But it's mostly around the players and players that I still keep in touch with, you know? We have players that call me their soccer grandpa, you know? I, I'm not the kid's grandfather, but, you know, I, I still hang around those kids and those families. I go to weddings. I just went to a wedding, my wife and I, last year of a player who had graduated seven or eight years ago. And that, that's the really good stuff, Anna. Yeah. Moving on from your coaching journey a little bit, can you tell us how you became, became into your current role at Sports Recruiting USA? Yeah, so the last college gig that I had, Anna, um, was in a very, very small town. And a town I still live just outside of in Qu called Quincy, California. There's 5,500 people in the town. There's only 20,000 in the whole county. And when I came in here, the team eh, wasn't very successful. They hadn't done very well. And I wanted to be, wanted to build national championship, right? So I started recruiting kids from overseas, from New Zealand, from Australia, from Sweden and Norway and Germany and England. And well, one of the companies that I was recruiting with from was Sports Recruiting USA and some of the better players that I've ever recruited. I've got a girl, Megan Stowe, who's playing at the professional level over in England that I had recruited from Sports Recruiting USA, you know, and, and I had recruited some really good players. And I really liked the way the company did business. They were an invitation-only agency, which I had never heard of. I thought most of the agencies would just take people's money and then do the best they could with the kids. But they were being really picky. And the kids were really good, just nice kids, good kids, really well-prepared. The company was always honest with me. And I liked the approach. It was just different. And then when I retired, Anna, they asked me to, um, to, to establish North America. They hadn't done much trying to help kids from Canada and U.S. and Mexico. And, and, um, and so I took on the challenge. And at that time, there were three of us in the company. And now there's 90. And we've got former college coaches now that have coached to Indiana. I've got one guy that's got, I think, three national championship rings at the Division I level. I've got another guy who's won national championships at the junior college level. We've got kids, uh, uh, coaches rather, that have, that have coached at Wisconsin and, and Xavier and uh, Northern Arizona and uh, Oregon State. And it's just incredible. And all I did was just kind of reach out to my friends, my friends that had been in college coaching with me. And they said, yeah, this is a good idea. We can help kids. We can guide families and make good decisions. And that's what we did. And through the past two and a half years, it's grown now to to over 90 scouts worldwide that are looking all over the world, trying to find kids that are special, that are different. And then we play matchmaker, right? Like match.com sort of for soccer players. Um, college coach tells us what they need. The kids tell us uh, uh, what they want. And then we try to make those little matches. So yeah, it, it was almost by circumstance that it, that it all came together, honestly. What are some of the common misconceptions of your role? Ah, uh, th that I'm a genie in the bottle. 
that somebody can hire me because they want to go to Stanford and then they can rub that bottle and magically they're going to go to Stanford and play soccer. It's not the way the world works. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, so I, the, yeah, I can't just make things happen. I can't force a college coach and twist their arm to take a player. It doesn't work like that, nor do I want to. So I think that's probably the biggest misconception is I can magically make something happen for people. All I can do is introduce people. And if they happen to be two good fits for each other, that's, fan that's fantastic. So from one side, Anna, I'm, I'm really honest with the families, brutally honest. And I'll tell them right out, look, you're not gonna play at UCLA. You're not gonna play at Indiana. You're not gonna play at Stanford. You're not that level of a player, but you're a very good player. And there's still 1300 colleges in the country that would love to know about you. And then on the other end, I'll only take a player to a college coach if I truly believe in my, you know, experience of 30 years of coaching that, that that is the right player for them or possibly the right player for them. Hey, here's a kid that I think you're going to be interested in. And then the worst that happens is the coach says, no, not quite the right fit. And I go, okay, but at least I know, Anna, that the player was a decent player and was a good person and was a good student. And the coach isn't going to say, hey, you're wasting my time. What do you do? You know, then at least I'm making a decent recommendation for them. So, yeah, I think that's the most mis common misconception that it, people have about my job is that I can magically make something happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. So once you introduce the players to the coach, what do they need to do to put in the work, to put their, keep their name in the coach's brain? That's a good one, because some players do drop the ball, honestly. Um, well, the first thing that I tell players is the hard work is this. Getting the great grades in school, because grades absolutely matter, Anna. They matter. I don't care what anybody says. Grades matter. I don't care if it's the next coming of, of, of Lionel Messi, right? Um, it doesn't matter. If your grades are 1.8 GPA, that coach can't pull strings to get you into Stanford. That can't, it doesn't work that way. So grades matter. And then, so, so that hard work of school and then soccer matters. You know, if you're not willing to get up in the morning and go for a run before school or go lift weights or spend some time after school with a wall and a ball, just because you want to get better, nothing, nothing to do with, hey, I'm going to be a pro. This is what I have to do. It's like, oh, I love soccer. I love juggling. I love going outside. I love hanging out with my friends. I love hitting the ball against the wall. All that hard work of not just practice. Okay, I have to go to practice. Now I'm done. Soccer's done for the day, right? No, the extra work. All that stuff has to happen in order to be an extremely successful athlete at the next level. Look, Anna, only about 7.5% when you average boys and girls out are going to get to play in college, period. That's it. That's a really small number, right? Over 500,000 kids, uh, 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 boys, and over 500,000 girls looking to try to play college soccer, and there's only about 16,000 openings for freshmen every year. It's a hard thing to make happen, right? That's the hard work. Now, once they're introduced to a college coach, the hard work is just keeping in touch with the coach. You know, I'll get coaches that come to me that says, hey, I really liked uh, uh, Anna Turi. I really liked her. Really nice player. I haven't heard from her for months. What's, what's happened to her? 
And then I'll ask that player and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 I've been busy. Well, if you're too busy to plan out your own career and to keep in touch with the coach, I don't know what you're wanting from me, you know? You, you have to do the work once you get in touch with that coach. It's, it's, you know, hey, coach, you know, when can we set up a visit? You know, hey, coach, uh, um, I'm going to be at a tournament this weekend, uh, and I heard that you're going to be there too. I'd like to meet with you. You know, things like that. Being able to just keeping in touch. At the end of the day, Anna, who you play for as a player is about a relationship, right? It's about building that relationship and relationships take work, right? It's like getting married, right? It's not good enough to say, I love you. Let's get married. Then you go and get married and then you never talk to each other again and expecting that marriage to work. That doesn't work that way. It's the old joke, Anna, right? It's like, I told you I married, I loved you the day that I married you. If that ever changes, I'll let you know. That, that, that attitude doesn't work, right? Once you love a coach and you love a school, you need to keep, keep in touch with them. And remember that your own, you know, to that coach, for, for that coach, right? That coach is just one person, right? But there's hundreds of players tugging at that coach's attention. So is it easier for you as a person to reach out to that coach? Or is it easier for that coach to reach out to hundreds of people? Obviously, for you to reach out, right? Right. And the players that do end up getting those college spots. And the players that don't end up wondering what happened to them and why they're not playing in college anymore. Yeah. So you did mention the academics quite a bit. How often do you see a player that has the talent and has the potential, but they don't have the grades? Scary, scary. Quite, quite often. You know, tell you a story. We were at a, we were at a tournament in Florida about a year and a half ago, and my buddy was from England, and he was over scouting with me. And he says, uh, "Don, you got to come over and see this player." So I, I dropped what I was doing, and I ran over and I looked at this kid, and I said, "Holy crud! He's special. He's really good." And I watched him a second time, and at the end of, end of that discussion. Uh, or instead of watching that game, we had a discussion that we were saying, I swear we could get on the phone right now. I think this kid could start for Stanford today. He was one of the most talented boys I had seen play in years. And, and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, and I said, hang on, I'll bet you this is one of those kids who has like a 1.8 GPA. He goes, how do you know? And I said, because he's really, 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 really good at soccer. And I bet that's all he does. I bet that's all he cares about. And I said, in addition to that, I'll bet you that this kid has been playing with adults since he was like 12 years old. And my buddy goes, how do you know? And I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, let's find out. So after the game, I went over and talked to the kid. And So what's your GPA? 1.9. Let me guess, you've been playing with soccer with, with adults since you were like 12? He says, well, yeah, since like 14. And I said, there you go. I said, this, this young man we can find on every corner in America where they dedicate 24 hours a day to one thing. And that's getting good in soccer because they want to be a professional. That's what they think is going to happen. And maybe it does, right? I, I lost track of that boy and maybe he is a professional now. I don't know. But usually that's not the case. So quite often it happens where I see a really great player and they don't have the grades. Now, people that come to me to go to college, they tend to have the grades. I mean, they're already thinking along the collegiate path and 
most people know that you're not going to go to Harvard with a 1.0 GPA. It's just not going to happen. Most people know that. But the cool thing is, is, you know, we've got, I don't know, Anna, five, 600 junior colleges in this country, in which case, look, grades don't matter. If you had a 1.0 GPA, you graduated from high school, you get that diploma, you can go to college and get a 3.9 GPA and just change your study habits and work really hard. And then those are the grades that transfer. Nobody cares what you did in high school at that point. So there's always a chance for somebody to still play in college. Yeah. So actually, if an athlete is in their junior or senior year and they're just then starting the recruitment process, is there still a chance for them to get into a college and to go far with the game? Oh, absolutely. You know, things have changed, Anna. And, and I think that America, our American public is still stuck in this mentality of five years ago where 13-year-olds were committing to North Carolina, you know. That, that's not, it's not legal anymore. That, that can't happen. The NCAA kind of put the brakes on that. So, you know, as you know, a coach can't even begin to have a conversation with you until basically after you've graduated your sophomore year. That's when the conversations can start. And your, your contract, your, your, your national letter of intent, if you're, getting, if you're getting athletic money, right, to say I'm officially committed to this school, can't even happen until November of your senior year. So everything in between there is just negotiation period and it's just talk period. And even when a player comes to me and says, all right, it's, uh, I'm, I, I, it's, it's September of my junior year and I'm committed to go to uh, University of Washington. I'm committed. If the coach from University of Washington decides to take the Stanford job because it opens up, then the new coach at University of Washington doesn't have to honor that commitment. It's just, it's what they call a verbal commitment. It's not, the NCAA doesn't recognize it. It's not binding. And then that player can be fine. I've got two girls right now that were slated to go to St. Mary's in California. The coach left to go pursue another career and the new coach has decided to take another direction. And so those kids are looking for a school. So now here we are, you know, going into their senior year and they're looking for a school, but then they're getting offers. They're getting a lot of offers. We had kids that, that were playing for national top 20 programs, division one, that didn't commit till March. Uh, and that's for 2020s, you know, for this, this past season, right? So I'm going to say that in this country, Anna, that, that probably 75% uh, and that's an anecdotal number. I don't have stats on it, but in my experience, 75% of the kids sign somewhere between March, and, um, I'm sorry, November and March of their senior year, 75%. So yeah, there's always a chance. And there's, if you're a really good player, that's A, you got really good grades, that's B, and you, your family is realistic about what it's gonna cost to go to school. Um, yeah, there's a school out there for you. How can you support a player who starts maybe their freshman or sophomore year? Yeah, you know, for my job, it's about getting to know the player. So can I help a player? In fact, I did. 
I helped a player this year who came to me in May and says, I'm a senior. I'm graduating in 15 days. I don't have a school. Can you find me a school? I said, okay, let's see what we can do. And 12 days later, he's committed to Coastal Carolina playing Division I. Is that the perfect fit for him? Might, might not be. I only knew the kid for 12 days. I don't know. You know, I didn't know him long enough to be able to say, this is the perfect school for you. So the earlier that I have a player that I begin to work with, if I begin with a freshman, I get to know them a little bit. I get to follow them. I get to have conversations with them. And then their sophomore year, I've seen loads of video. I've had uh, quite a few conversations. And by their junior year, I've known them for two years. I feel like they're my own kid, you know? Uh, we've had a lot of conversations, family conversations. I mean, we've even had dinners with their family, right? I get to really, really know them well. And at those points, I can make really good recommendations. And, and I can say, look, if we've been talking about this and you really like this kind of a school, that this is your perfect school. I've got a girl, great example. I got a girl that I worked with for a little over a year, about a year and a half, I think, I guess. And, and she was out of a place called Carson City, Nevada. Most people have never heard of Carson City. Anybody who knows their geography in school knows that it's the capital of Nevada. Las Vegas is not the capital of Nevada. Carson City is, and there's a, but it's a really small town. And her name was Madison Smalley, and I found her at a really terrible tournament. I was almost ready to leave and found her, and she's a fantastic player just pops out of nowhere. So I stayed and watched her the rest of the day and watched her to play in follow-up games, got to know her family, spent a lot of time with her, went and visited her at her high school, got to know her coaches, got to know everything about her. And when, when I sat down with the coaching staff this past January of Dallas Baptist University, I think they're ranked number 10 in the country, division two one of the top division two programs in the country. And the coach was telling me all about her program and everything and then told me what she needed. I said, hang on, I got a player you need to see. And I pulled out my computer, showed her my player, discussed this player for the next hour with her. And by the time that I stood up, I got on the phone and I said, Madison, I found your perfect fit. This is everything you ever told me that you wanted in a school. It is the fit for you. That only happened because I worked with her for a long period of time before. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What are some of the important rules and regulations that players should know through the recruitment process? Well, the player can't get in much trouble. So it's the coaches that can get in trouble, right? So for players, it's kind of more deadlines. Like uh, most people don't know that yesterday is when the FAFSA uh, applications opened up. So then players don't know that, then they don't apply for FAFSA and they wait till the last second. And now federal financial aid is kind of run out and that player doesn't get money because they waited too long. So for the player, it's more like deadlines, right? You know, for a player ha has to know that before they can sign a national letter of intent with the NCAA, they have to be registered ahead of time with the NCAA eligibility center, right? Um, Players might frustrate them, their own selves because they don't know certain things like a freshman or a sophomore might be reaching out to college coaches and not getting a response because the college coach is not allowed to respond to them. 
So all they're getting is camp invites. And they think that that, that coach doesn't care and all they're doing is sending camp. Well, it's because that's all the coach is allowed to legally do. So from a player aspect, Anna, they really can't get in trouble personally if it, uh, because of certain rules. It's the college coach that has to watch out for that stuff. When athletes are looking for their perfect fit, should they consider a school that maybe doesn't have a major that fits their goals? Well, I think, I think we should be open-minded. I'm not sure how many 14, 15, 16-year-old kids know. I mean, they think they know what they want to do, but they could change their minds. And like I say, a lot of kids do change their minds. It's nice to say, I want to be a doctor until, you know, you cut open your first corpse. And then you cut open your first corpse in your anatomy class in college and you go, oh, this isn't what I want to do. I don't like this at all. Well, okay. Or maybe I want to go into a different, you know, maybe I want to go into psychology now, right? Or be a psychiatrist, or I want to go into, uh, 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 you know, being a, being a, I don't know, a podiatrist, right? Or I don't have to, you know, cut people open. I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. So, you know, people need to keep an open mind. I had a very good friend of mine, Anna, who said his whole life, he says, I wanted to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer. He went to school. I want to be a lawyer. Went to law school. I want to be a lawyer. Went to work on a law firm. And he says, this is terrible. I want to be a chemistry teacher. So he went back to school and now he's been a chemistry teacher for 25 years and he's very, very happy. So I think, I think people have to allow themselves flexibility to change their minds, Anna. How can the parents support their players during these times? How can they or how should they? How should they, definitely. Okay, yeah, I like that one better. A lot of parents think they're supporting their kids when they're really damaging them. Look, A, let your kids be kids. Anna, I had somebody, and I'm not lying to you, I had somebody send me the video of their 12-year-old kid because they wanted me to help their 12-year-old kid achieve college and professional stardom. 10, year, 10 years old, what did I say, 12? 10 years old the kid is. And honestly, I couldn't even bring myself to answer the parent. I just had to delete the message because the parent is very delusional at that point that why are you pushing? This is not coming from your 10-year-old child. I don't know any 10-year-olds who are pushing their parents to contact people to get them placed into a college or to play professionally. So that's coming from the parents. So I think let your kids be kids. That's my first advice to parents. Um, one of my girls, here's a good one. This will illustrate the issue. One of my girls, name is Lindsay Dickerson. If you all want to go on to our website, look at our testimonials, you'll see one from Lindsay Dickerson. She was part of the U.S. Youth National Team from the age of 13 to 17, um, and then went to Stanford and won a national championship at Stanford. Her dad would, oh, Francis is going to kill me if he hears this. But he knows. It's a true story. I don't think he'll be too mad. I'll be nice. He is one of the nicest. His name's Francis Dickerson. One of the nicest men on planet Earth, first of all. Loves his daughter to death and would do anything for her. You know, oh, what happened in that game? And, and I think you should do better here. And I think you should do better that. And then he would carry her bag for her. And I said, no, oh, Francis, it's exactly the opposite. You know, make her carry her own bag and then go easy on her with the games not be hard on her with the games and then make her life easy by carrying her bag. You've got it opposite. 
And, and so I, I really think it's important for parents just to support their kids and be parents. Let the coaches be coaches. Let the referees be referees. Let the opponents be the opponents and let your kid be a kid. Where you can encourage your player and where you can support your player is, hey, they're too young to drive. Drive them. If it takes two hours to get them into the better team that they want to play on, then drive them two hours. Support them however you can support them. Academically, encouraging your kids to do their homework. That's where you need to be a parent. Did your homework get done? You know, did you study? And I'm not talking about yelling at your kids because they got a B plus in, in, on their chemistry tests. I'm talking about encouraging them and, and recognizing that if your kid is struggling in math, maybe they need a math tutor. You know, being a good parent, just supporting. I think that that's the, maybe the most important thing. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons, Anna, why we've got such a large dropout rate. When you look at youth soccer, it's one of the largest participatory sports in the United States and Canada from the ages of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, At the ages of 14, 15, 16, not so much. It drops off. And I think the kids just feel too much pressure. It becomes a job to them, not, not a game. I think they forgot the love of the game and they forgot how to keep the game beautiful. We've made it to our final question, which I ask every guest. Okay. What do you hope people remember about your impact to soccer and the world? It's kind of like, what do you want people to say about you when you die? <laughs> Isn't it? Um, and within the soccer world, I want them to say that he was a good, honest guy who helped a lot of people achieve their dreams. That's it. Yeah. Short epitaph on my headstone. Yeah. I absolutely love chatting with Don today. It was so much fun. I love learning more and more about his role with Sports Recruiting USA and also just for the recruiting process in, in general. I do feel like I know a lot about the recruiting process, but obviously there's still so much more to be learned. If you have a player or an athlete who is still struggling in the recruitment process or they're wanting to play collegiately, but they don't know what to do next, I would suggest they listen to this episode or at least get a guideline of what needs to be done and the rules and things like that. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and until next week, remember to keep the game beautiful.